in that way, and it'll be great. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Uh, before we honor Pastor Josh up to, to preach on his, his sermon titled, God, Who is a Good Father, I will read our Bible passage for today from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 17 to 27. Uh, you can follow up on the screen, mobile app, or on your physical Bible that we all have with us. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and, and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit internal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, New Mercy. Uh, my name is Josh. I am one of the pastors here on staff, and I just want to take some time to welcome you. I know we have uh, a couple of newcomers here, or maybe this is your first time while in the back. Uh, and I just want to say this, is that we've been specifically praying for you. We've been specifically preparing for you. And so we hope that as you are listening to the word, worshiping with us, being in our community, we pray that you will leave feeling more refreshed and renewed by being in God's presence with us today. Amen. Today, I'm going to wrap up our sermon series, For God So Loved, and over the past few weeks, we've been looking at um, who does God love, who does his heart break for, and why does his heart break? And so we talked about how God's heart is so full of compassion and love because he is a God who seeks, he is a God who heals, he is a God who sees, and today we're going to look at scripture to see another side of God's heart through the story in Mark chapter 10, all right? But before we get there, I just want to take some time to pray, and then we'll, we'll head right in. Jesus, we thank you so much just for your presence and your goodness to our church, your faithfulness. God, we just take this pause right now in service to remember how faithful you've been. And I just feel like there's some people in the room today, um, this week, you have to make some big decisions. And I just feel like um, God wants to let you know um, that he, he's the one that can give discernment. He's the one that can give wisdom. All you have to do is ask. Um, and so I just feel like God wants to father you this week, so don't be afraid to ask him. But Lord, as we just head into your word, would you be with us and encourage us, challenge us? Um, and Lord, we love you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Back in 2014, I had just finished my last semester of college, and so while most of my friends were going to the workforce, while they were um, going into other parts of their life, I was actually headed to Ivory Coast, Africa. 
And what had happened was at the beginning of my last semester, I was really wrestling with God. God, what am I called to do? Am I called to go to seminary right away? Should I go to the workforce right away? Um, but as I was praying about it, I felt like God was saying, Josh, I want you to go serve as a missionary for a year. And so my plan was to go to Ivory Coast to teach English, to teach the Bible to Ivorian middle school and high schoolers. And Danny, who was just emceeing right now, we actually went together for a year. And so, my, you know, I booked my flight. My flight was set for July 5th of 2014. However, on the day right before the flight, on July 4th, I remember waking up to this extreme pain in my body around 2 a.m. I mean, if you want to talk about spiritual warfare, this was it, right? My head was throbbing, and I wanted to grab something and drill a hole in my head because of the pressure, breaking out in fever. My stomach was in so much pain, and this just came out of nowhere. So I got up, and I remember popping an Advil and Tylenol. I'm thinking, man, maybe after just a couple hours, I'll be okay. This is just, this is just something that just happened randomly, but... After an hour, I woke up my parents because the pain was so unbearable, and I told them, hey, I think I actually need to go to the ER. And so we go to the ER, they're doing all these different tests, and eventually the doctor comes up to me, and they're like, hey, we actually don't know what's wrong with you. And I'm thinking, man, if you guys don't know what's wrong with me right now, then who does, right? And there's this growing anxiety and this growing tension within inside of me, and I'm wondering, man, What's wrong with me? Will I be able to make it to my flight tomorrow? What if they find something serious? Do I have to cancel my mission trip? But after a couple hours later, the doctors come and they let us know what's wrong. And they're like, hey, and they tell us, hey, we, we actually have a diagnosis and we have a treatment. And, and at that moment, there's a sense of relief that comes over me, right? The certainty, the security of knowing what's actually going on within me. And with the right medication, I immediately started to feel better. Now, I bring up that story to talk about the state of our world today. We are living in the most abundant and most prosperous time period of human history. And you would think people would be happy. You would think people would be satisfied in a world today with all that is available in society and in our world. Yet, there's this peaceless unease that is tangibly present in our cultural moment. Externally, our world and our society seems abundant and prosperous and successful in terms of progress, but internally, people are feeling stuck at their work. Is this all there's life? Is this all there in life? There has to be something more in this, or they feel behind in life. Others feel this nagging unhappiness, and so they're trying to constantly get new jobs, go on exotic vacations, switch things up, move to a different city, get a new haircut, etc., etc. Some of us are feeling disillusioned and hopeless with everything going on in the world today. People feel emotionally exhausted and anxious because we're, we're constantly trying to grasp at happiness, which seems so fleeting. And if we're not constantly happy, then it feels like we're failing in life because that has become the benchmark of a good and successful life today. Leon Cass, who's a hum, uh, humanity professor at the University of Chicago, he says this. He says, we are one of the most prosperous generations, but also one of the most spiritually impoverished generations. And no one seems to understand what is actually happening. And we're trying to figure this out. We're trying to solve this issue through, you know, psychologically, sociologically, politically, et cetera, et cetera. But no one seems to actually know why all of us are living so restless. In our passage for today, we see a young man who is experiencing restlessness as well in his life. And much like the world and us today, he doesn't understand what is fundamentally wrong with him. 
Why am I restless? Why am I so dissatisfied? What is the diagnosis? Where is this restlessness and peaceless unease coming from? And finally, what can I do about it? But when we get to the heart of what is wrong with us, we'll see how liberating it is for him, for us, and for the world. And we'll experience a sense of relief when we get the correct diagnosis and the correct treatment. So read with me Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 16. Jesus and his disciples, they just left Capernaum, and they're heading towards Jerusalem where it says this. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. After blessing each child, Jesus gets up and he's about to make his journey onto Jerusalem when a young man runs up to him and gets on his knees and kneels before him. Now, we don't know much about this young man right off of the introduction of Mark 10. You know, who is he? What does he do? Why is he on his knees? Is he desperate? Does he need Jesus to heal someone? But when we read the other accounts of you know, Matthew and Luke, what we find out is that this young man is rich, he is young, and he is a ruler. And this rich young ruler gets on his knees and asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is an interesting and powerful question that the rich young ruler asks of Jesus. Because I mean, if you think about it, he has everything that life has to offer. He has the riches, right, wealth and abundance. He has the righteousness, good social standing and community. He has respect, power, authority, and status. But the interesting thing is this, is that even though his life is completely secure, he's unsure about eternal life. In other words, he's living the good life according to culture, how it's defined, yet he can't help but feel that something is still amiss in his life. And it's just not what the rich young ruler feels. It's what we all feel to varying degrees, right? It's what so many people experience and feel in the world today, the feeling of restlessness. Now, restlessness, according to the dictionary, is defined in two ways. Number one, it's a mood characterized by the inability to stay still or at rest, usually connected to anxiety. And the second definition is this, discontent or dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction that drives one to keep looking for solutions, alternatives, or new things. Now, to give you more examples that captures the essence of restlessness, I, I want to give you some examples. The first one is this, is Alexis de Tocqueville, who is a 1800 French sociologist. He describes America back in the 1830s as, um, he describes this as America's pursuit of happiness and wealth and materialism is so unique. And he noticed Americans were constantly tormented by this vague fear of not being happy, and therefore they consumed and clutched everything in their sight, only to seek after new things soon after. And this fascinated Tocqueville because he thought that America's abundance would produce a people with a peace of mind and a serenity of spirit, but instead, you know what he found out? It produced the people who he would describe as feverish, impatient, anxious, tormented and a grasping spirit and at the end of the day his conclusion on america was this is that consumption doesn't bring contentment and riches don't bring rest and it's funny two centuries later 
Tocqueville's diagnosis still applies not just to America, but to the entire world today, right? Ronald Roheiser, who's a renowned Roman Catholic spiritual writer, he, he writes this about this cultural restlessness that's tangibly in our world today and how it prevents a deeper spirituality in life, right? He says this, our lives become consumed with the idea that unless we somehow experience everything, travel everywhere, see everything, are part of a large number of other people's experience, aka FOMO, that our lives are small and meaningless. We become impatient with every hunger, every ache, and every non-consummated area within our lives, and we become convinced that unless every pleasure we yearn for is tasted, we will be unhappy. We stand before life too greedy, too full of expectation that cannot be realized, and unable to accept that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. When this happens, an obsessive restlessness leaves us unable to rest or be satisfied because we are convinced that all lack, all tension, and all unfulfilled yearning is tragic. Thus, it becomes tragic to be alone, to be unmarried, to be married, but not completely fulfilled romantically and sexually, to not be good-looking, or to be unhealthy, aged, or handicapped, it becomes tragic to be caught up in duties and commitments which limit our freedom, aka having a job, yet tragic to be poor, but also tragic to go through life and not be able to taste every pleasure on earth and fulfill every potential inside us. When we are obsessed in this way, it's hard to be contemplative. We are too focused on our own heartaches to be very open and receptive to God. Super insightful on what's going on culturally that we're increasingly distracted, dissatisfied, fatigued, and anxious because we feel that what we have or where we are in life is not enough. And whatever we have, we want more of. Wherever we are, we want to be somewhere else. Ben and Jenna Story, who are secular professors at um, Furman University, they actually wrote this whole book on this cultural phenomenon of restlessness, right? About how human beings are on a quest to find happiness, but in their quest, they always seem to fail. And they write this, restlessness pervades American life. You can see it everywhere in our love for the screen with its diversions and distractions, in our demand for endless variety in what we eat, drink, and wear, in our appetite for mind-altering substances from pot to Prozac to Pinot Grigio, in our fascination with crisis in almost every area of human life. Restlessness seems to increase with privilege rather than the reverse. The modern middle class is restless in the midst of their well-being. I hope you get the picture and, and I hope you resonate with this idea of restlessness, the, the, the meaninglessness that we all feel, the dissatisfaction that there has to be something more in life than this, or the exhaustion of constantly chasing and pursuing after happiness. Now, what is the world's treatment to the restlessness that the rich young ruler feels? What, what we and the world experience and feel? The first treatment or remedy is that the world offers is pleasure. That the way you feel restful is seeking after as much pleasure as you can. Materialism, consumerism, excess, right? The mantra of the day is indulge at all costs because the more you have, the more you win. So more wealth, more sex, more comfort. But the problem is, is that that doesn't seem to work for the rich young ruler, right? Because think about it. He has all the wealth and all the abundance not to only live securely, but to actually enjoy life lavishly. Yet, at the end of the day, he knows that something is still amiss. 
And we see this with the younger prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where after he spends all of his inheritance, he, what does it say? That he came to his senses. Why? Because at the end of the road of pleasure, there is an emptiness that leaves us emptier than before. And many of us have experienced this in our lives and in a story as well. So the diagnosis and the treatment isn't pleasure. The second treatment or remedy that the world offers is performance. That the way you will feel rest or happy is, is through religious behavior or good works. That because humanity is driven by morality, if you want contentment and rest, be a good person through your behavior. Earn a good standing with God or higher power so that you'll be owed a life without suffering, without pain, without injustice, because you've deserved it. But this is also the rich young ruler, right? He's, he's done all the righteous stuff. And Jesus, when Jesus tells him, hey, don't you, have you done all the commandments? What does he say? The rich young ruler responds, I have kept all of these since I was a little boy. And I thought I would feel fulfillment. I thought I would feel happiness. But even my good works and my religious behaviors still leave me feeling dissatisfied. We see this sentiment once again with the older prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 where he misunderstands the heart of the father and so he views his life story as I've been slaving away at my own father's house. Why? Because at the end of the road of performance, there's only dissatisfaction. And many of us have experienced this as well in the form of legalism or in the form of the religious spirit, which is why here at our church we emphasize over and over and over again that our salvation isn't based on how bad you are, nor is it based on how good you are. It is based on God's grace alone. Amen? So the diagnosis and the treatment is in performance. And the last treatment that the world offers is personhood. That the way you will feel rest or happiness is through constructing your own identity. And this is the one that probably many in our world are so familiar with today. The earning, the striving, the need for accomplishing. The idea that we must produce, we must be better, we must hustle. Because what we do ultimately defines who I am. And the worth of who I am is dependent upon the respect, the power, and the status of my accomplishments. This is why it's so interesting when the rich young ruler asked the question how. He says, what must I do? What must I do? And, and as a ruler, he has all the respect. He has all the power. He has all the accomplishments. Yet he still feels like something is missing in his life. Why? Because at the end of the road of personhood, there's only exhaustion and there's only burnout. Your accomplishments, they bring satisfaction, significance, and acceptance just for a moment. But the bar keeps rising each time you accomplish something. And so you have to try harder and harder and harder. And eventually you realize that no matter what you do or no matter what you accomplish in life, it's never enough. It's never enough. So then what is the correct diagnosis of our restlessness or the peaceless unease that we feel? Elsewhere in scripture, there's another group of people that are experiencing similar things, and it's the church in Colossae. And their faith was restless as they were facing different cultural temptations and pressures to turn away from Jesus. 
So Apostle Paul, he actually writes the book of Colossians to this church and reminds them, hey, you have security, you have meaningfulness, you have wholeness and contentment in Jesus Christ. And he reminds them that their relationship with Jesus is actually the life that they long for. You'll find all your fulfillment in your relationship with Jesus. So he writes this in Colossians 1, verse 21 to 22. This is the NIV version. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I want to read for us verse 22 again, but this is going to be the message version. But now by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side, God's side and put your lives together whole and holy in his presence, right? This is the apostle saying, this is what you actually long for. Isn't this what so many of us in the world long for today? Our lives put together, integrated, our lives being whole, right, healing, our lives being holy, transcendent, that there's something more to our life than just the daily grind in and grind out. And as apostle Paul, he reminds them of that this is the life they long for, he actually reveals the diagnosis. And he says this, that the fundamental problem behind all of our cultural restlessness is this, we are alienated from God. We are alienated from God. And this is the root behind all of our cultural restlessness. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines alienation as this. The concept of alienation identifies a distinct kind of psychological or social ill, namely one involving a problematic separation between a self and other that properly belong together a problematic separation between self and another that properly belong together. And this is what our culture is dealing with today, a problematic reality that we are separated from a God that we were created to know, amen? That we were created to know. Melvin Seaman, who's an American sociologist, he wrote, he wrote on the meaning of alienation in 1959, and here's how he describes alienation. There's five ways. Number one, there's a sense of powerlessness. We see this so much here in our region being influenced by New York City, right? Where we think if we can get the money, if we can achieve a ton of success and power, if we can get the recognition that we desire so much in our respective workplaces and field, then you will find meaning and you will be satisfied. But as many of us have experienced underneath it all, we realize that all of that actually has no power. That all of those things that we thought would empower us do nothing to actually change the state of our heart and remove the restlessness that we all feel. The second thing is sense of accomplishment. It's just the same thing with accomplishments. The things that we thought that would be so good for our lives end up being meaningless. A sense of normlessness is this an inability to form moral and ethical ways of relating to the world on a consistent basis, meaning this, that there's an internal life of chaos within us, an internal life of chaos, a sense of isolation, and a, self, uh, and a sense of self-estrangement. We're just not at peace with who we are. And we look at society today and wonder why are people so fragile in their identities? It's because they are alienated also from themselves. People don't know who to be, how to be authentic, and where to derive their sense of worth from. We don't see this only in our lives, but we see this culturally all around in the world today, right? Suicide rates have gone up in the last two years in the pandemic, especially women. 
People are constantly feeling dissatisfied with their marriages, their work, their life, their church, and they're constantly trying to shake things up, thinking and believing that there has to be something better than where I am right now. You go to Brooklyn and see any millennial and Gen Z, and, and they're Holden Caulfield and J.C. Salinger's book, The Catcher in the Rye, where they're living so cynically and disillusioned in order to protect themselves from the pain, the angst, the, the disappointment, and the meaninglessness that they feel. You listen to Billie Eilish, who's one of the um, most popular pop artists today, right? And you wonder, why do so many kids and why do so many people relate to her song? It's because her lyrics are all about the inner chaos that everyone is feeling. Or think about the mantra of the day. Like, what do people say all the time today? I've got to find myself. I don't know who I am. I've got to find myself. So what do they do? They move out to California because supposedly that's where you find yourself, right? They move out to California. I've got to find myself. This is the state of the world when we are alienated from God, when we are lost and separated from a God who we were properly meant to belong together with. And this isn't unique just to this cultural moment, but this has been the human condition since the beginning of time. Since the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God and there was a separation that happened between God and humanity, humanity has been constantly trying to fill up this God-shaped hole inside all of us with all sorts of different things that thinking that those things will truly satisfy the restlessness that they feel, that it'll finally remove the restlessness, the sense of alienation, but it goes all without success. So then what is the treatment? The first thing is this, is that understanding that God is a God who fathers. God is a God who fathers. Back in college, I was going through one of the lowest lows in my life, and what had happened was I just had failed out of my pharmacy program. What made it a big deal was that um, I didn't fail out in the first first year or the second year as most people did um, because that would have been easy just to maneuver into another college another major and still graduate on time but what had happened was I actually failed out in my fourth year where I was so close to the finish line and the past four years I built my worth I built my future on my performance and my personhood but in just a moment of feeling all of that just came crumbling down and the identity that I had constructed for myself right it was just all shattered and I was feeling the powerlessness, I was feeling the normlessness, I was feeling the inner chaos, the isolation, the self-estrangement, and I was just a freaking mess, all right? I was a complete freaking mess, getting into fights with my mom every day, punching holes in the wall, not taking care of any responsibilities, being depressed, a freaking mess. And this went on for days, all right? And I remember one time, like about a week later after I got the news of my, um, failing out, I was just feeling so anxious. Like, man, what am I going to do? I can't believe I just wasted my four years like that. How could I have let this happen? And I was just going out on a walk. And as I'm going on a walk, I get a text message and I check in. It's my dad. And, and I, I ignore it right away because um, I'm expecting that I would get an angry message saying, hey, it's time to start getting out of bed. It's time to start taking care of your responsibilities. If you fight with your, if you fight with your mom one more time, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I just put it away. But eventually, when I made my way back home, I eventually read the text, and um, I don't know why I'm getting so emotional. But I read the text, and um, if you guys know my dad, um, he's one of the nicest, gentle guys in the world, and he doesn't speak much, and you know, even our relationship, we don't, we don't like, converse that much, but I read the text, and he wrote in Korean, he says, Josh, I know you're going through a really hard time, and I can see that you're in pain. Let's grab dinner sometime this week if you're free. For I want you to know that I'm here for you as a father, and I want to help. 
a lot of times the world and ourselves, we misunderstand God to be this angry person that he desires to punish us for the ways that we try to illegitimately fill this God-sized hole, this God-sized heart inside of us. But the truth is this, is that God is a God who not only seeks after the lost, God is a God that not only heals us, God is not a God who just sees us, but God is also a God who fathers us. And this is the first treatment because if we believe that God is just angry at people in the world, we will totally miss the heart of God as a father. Because the whole biblical story is this, is that God understands we are alienated from him. He understands that we are orphans outside of the Father's house. He understands that people are in pain and we're trying to fix ourselves through pleasure, through performance, through personhood. And it breaks his heart to see us living reactively out of our senseless alienation. So what does God do? Jesus sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die an innocent death on the cross, to pay the price that we were meant to pay so that the gap between God and humanity would no longer exist, amen? This was Jesus' whole mission. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus didn't come to make mean people nice, but he came to seek after the lost and welcome the orphans back into the Father's house so that they would no longer be alienated from God, but probably belong together with their creator as sons and daughters. This is why my favorite verse in today's passage is verse 21, where it says that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, and what did it say? It said that Jesus loved him. You would think Jesus would be angry. You would think Jesus would rebuke him, knowing that shortly right after this, the rich young ruler is going to walk away. But instead, what? Jesus loved him. Why? Because Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father. And because God is a good Father, Jesus didn't see a rich young ruler in front of him. But through the eyes of a father, he saw a son who was lost and orphaned, trying to bridge the separation and the sense of alienation by himself. God not only fathers, but God is also a father who loves people for who they are and not what they do or who they pretend to be. This is the second part of the treatment. You, you notice that when the rich young ruler asks, what must, you know, he asks, what must I do? Right? This idea of doing, accomplishing, striving, earning. He says, what must I do? Because he believes that inheritance is based on what you do. It can be earned. Identity is something you construct. Salvation is something based on human effort. And, and this question in and of itself reveals how much of the world, how the world operates today, right? Alienated from God, trying to fill their God-sized hole. This is how they operate, with an orphan mindset, believing that the worth of who I am is based on what I do. And the orphan mindset is this, is that first, I think we have a slide up here, that first I need to accomplish only then if I accomplish something, then I will feel significance. I will feel worthy. And then if I feel worthy, then I can build my entire identity upon what I've done, upon what I've accomplished. And then finally, finally, finally at the end, only then will I be accepted. But you see, what happens is that when we live from this orphan mindset over time, we develop this false self or this false identity where people believe they can only be loved and accepted if they, if they present themselves through some constructed identities rather than revealing who they truly are. And David Brenner, who's a Christian psychologist, he defines the false self as this. At the core of the false self is a desire to preserve an image of ourselves, how we want others to see us and think of us. In short, 
we learn how to present ourselves in the best possible light, a light designed to create a favorable impression and maintain our self-esteem. While this might seem quite benign, the dark side of pretending is that what begins as a role becomes an identity. And initially, the masks we adopt reflect how we want others to see us. Over time, however, they come to reflect how we want to see ourselves. But by this point, we have thoroughly confused the mask and our actual experience. Our mask have become our reality and we have become our lives. In short, we have lost our authenticity and adopted an identity based on illusion. We have become a house of smoke and mirrors. In other words, people's identities become dependent on what you have, what you can do, and what others think of you. I think this is why so many people in our world today, we have such identity crisis and we have such fragile identities that are broken and shaken up at everything when life hits them. Because the ongoing sense of alienation or restlessness that all of us live with leads us to hide ourselves behind our fig leaves or our false identities just like Adam and Eve. And we hide behind these fig leaves or our masks and we take on these identities built on race, gender, sexuality, interest, accomplishments, connections, friends, families, or socioeconomic status. I mean, you even notice how sometimes even people put on a mask that laughs at their shame, at their guilt, at their restlessness, choosing to flaunt their brokenness, right, our darkest sin, pretending and believing that that's actually who they are and that is actually completely acceptable. Yet the result of the orphan spirit and the false self is that you will never be truly known and loved for who you actually are. But the good part of the gospel is this. It actually begins in Jesus' baptism where Jesus comes out of the water, and what does God say? God says, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Jesus has yet to do a single miracle. He has yet to do any signs and wonders. He has yet to perform any healings, yet because God is a father and he loves him for who he is and not who he pretends to be, God, God shows him, man, this is my love for you. That inheritance isn't based on what we do, but to whom we belong to. Your identity isn't based on what you do, but who you belong to. And we belong to a God who loves us for who we are, who we are. And what we see in the world today is, you know, like first you must accomplish, gain significance, um, construct the false self, and then you'll be accepted. But in the Father's house, do you know what actually happens? The whole thing gets flipped upside down. And as a son and a daughter, we're first accepted based on God's grace alone. And then once we're accepted, our identity isn't constructed on our own accomplishments, but what? It's freely given by God. And then you receive your worth from this consistent, never-ending, faithful love of God rather than the fig trees and the mass that are so fleeting and inconsistent. And then from that place, you accomplish. Not for acceptance, but from acceptance. And that changes everything because we're no longer striving, we're no longer earning, we're no longer seeking our worth and acceptance from our performance, but we can be at peace knowing that you are first fully known and loved by God, amen? I, I love this story of a new believer away from God. He radically encounters Jesus and he's experiencing all of this change in his life, right? Community, renewing of the mind or whatever. But he says this, is that all the change, of all the changes he's experiencing, the biggest notable difference in his life was oddly that he began to sleep better. For the first time in his young life, he could put his head on his pillow, unconcerned about some great abyss of nothingness or the insensate, insensate anxiety that, some, that had ruled him in the past, 
fears of an angry God who was eternally upset with him. He was finally at peace with God. There was literally nothing more powerful for his mind than being able to lay his head down at night, knowing that the God of the universe loved him infinitely. Isn't this what so many people in the world long for today? Isn't this what the rich young ruler longs for in the world today? Isn't this what so many of us here in this room with our God-sized hole we're longing for, being able to rest in God's love, knowing that we are first and foremost loved and accepted for who we are, not what we do or who we pretend to be. And the third and the last treatment is understanding that God is a father who gives us rest in his love. So God is a father. God loves us for who we are, not what we do. And God is a father who gives us rest in his love. Now, the timing of this message, I, th I think it's so funny um, because Pastor Lisa and I, we actually switch. And this is one week after the mass mandates in Jersey has ended. And what I'm about to say isn't a political statement, so don't take it in any wrong way. But we can agree and attest that having to keep our mask on for the past two years, it was really tiring and it was really annoying, right? The breathing, the tension. The, the, the tension behind our ears and need to constantly adjust and make sure that our mask is in place. For all the people who wear eyewears or your glasses, right, the humidity from your breath constantly fogging up your glasses, it's, it's been tiring and annoying. For the exact same reason, so many people in the world today and so many in the church today, we are tired, we are exhausted, and we are weary. Why? Because we have constructed these false identities, these false masks on fig leaves, things that truly don't satisfy us. And people have been living with the mask on physically and spiritually for the past few years. And, and, and the reason why it's so tiring is this, is because the false self, it needs to be constantly reinforced. It needs to be constantly adjusted like our physical mask by the very things it's made up of. So just to give you an example, if you built your false identity, if you built your mask on accomplishments, and the only way that the false self will remain intact is if you keep accomplishing more. You have to accomplish more. You have to accomplish more. And it's this endless, brutal cycle where it will never, ever, ever be enough. And eventually your false self will shatter. Eventually your false self will fall off like a mask and you will need to put on a new mask. But God as a father is this, is that God desires to set us free from anxiety, from restlessness, and from the exhaustion that we are all feeling, amen? He desires to give us rest in his love. But the thing is this, is that we actually have to take off our mask. We actually have to surrender our false selves. We actually have to lay down the orphan spirit and instead exchange it by resting in God's love as sons and daughters. This is why Jesus tells a rich young ruler that even though he has the riches, even though he has the righteousness, even though he has the respect and the status, he still lacks one thing. Go and sell all your possessions to the poor and then come and follow me. But what does scripture say? Scripture says that the young man put his head down and he walked away in great sorrow. Why? Because he had so much wealth. And the point of that command by Jesus wasn't to say that God doesn't want us to be wealthy or that we have to give all of our wealth away, right? That's not the point. You know, a lot of times preachers preach this and then people always come up after them afterwards like, do I have to give all my wealth? No, that's not the point of this passage, right? The command was descriptive specifically for the rich young ruler rather than being prescriptive universally for everyone. 
And it was descriptive specifically for the rich young ruler because his mask, his false self, his false identity was based on his wealth. Jesus knew that his entire fragile constructed identity was based on his wealth, his respect, his accomplishment, and his status. And until he took off his mask and exchanged his false self for the true self that God wants to give, he would never, ever, ever to be fully at rest in God's love. Now, some of us, we're hearing that, and we're like, man, that Jesus, that's, that's, that command is harsh. But the thing is, is, is if we understand that God is a father who desires to give us rest, we understand that at the end of the day, Jesus' deepest desire for this world that is so restlessness, that has been alienated from him, that's been trying to fill this God-sized hole with anything and everything, is to ultimately replace our fig leaves with secure garments of identity and acceptance. That you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. You no longer have to strive. You no longer have to earn. You no longer have to toil for acceptance and love. I'm so proud of who you are rather than what you do. What are the false selves that we need to lay down in order to rest in God's love? What are the masks that we have to take off? For some of us, it's your job and your career. Not that you have to leave your job and career away, but maybe you have to take a step back a little bit. For some of us, it's trying to be that perfect parent for your child. For others of us, it's, it's, it's trying to be such a good person, right? Trying to be a good person compared to everyone else around you. For other of us, it's, it's the false self is living a certain lifestyle. Whatever it is, God's deepest desire is that the world alienated from him would no longer be orphans, but children of God, sons and daughters, fully known, fully accepted, and properly belonging back together with him. This is why coming back full circle, it's not a coincidence that the passage right before this one with the rich young ruler is what? Jesus welcoming children and saying what? That the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That if you want to receive the kingdom, you must become a child. You must not be an orphan. You must lay down your false self and receive his love. So I want to just close with this. Two just practical points for us as a church. How can we live this out? Number one is this, is that we ourselves need to rest in his love and surrender our false selves, surrender our false identities, take off our mask, right? This idea of God loving us, God accepting us, it can't just be head knowledge. It needs to be a lived truth. And for a lot of us in this room, it's time to take off our masks. It's time to rest in his love. It's time to live out our true selves. Because I truly believe this, that the greatest witness to God's love, the greatest witness to who God is, it won't be better theology. It won't be better praise team. It won't be better messages. But the greatest witness to God's love is when we as sons and daughters live out this identity as God's beloved more and more so that other people around us will experience the fruit of resting in his love, right? People should be asking us around us, hey, I have the same job as you. I have a lovely family like you. Uh, We're in the same situation of life. But why does it seem that you're so fearless at this time when I'm so fearful? I have a God who loves me. Why does it seem that you're so at peace and I'm so anxious and and driven in this moment? Like, what is it about it? Because I know who I am and it's not based on what I do. Why is it that your life seems so unhurried? It seems so restful. It doesn't seem exhausting. It doesn't seem strifeful because I know who I am and I'm resting in my Father's love. The greatest witness is when we live this out ourselves to a world that is aching, yearning and longing for relief from this restlessness and alienation.
compassion. The second thing for us is this, is that we need to grow in compassion and see people as the, through the eyes of the Father. You know, the way the, way, with the way the world is operating today, you know, it's just so easy to view people in such binary ways, like Republicans, Democrats, this race, that race, this gender, that gender, this people, I mean, this um, male, female, whatever, right? We're conditioned to see people in a certain way. And I think that affects the way we view people as well as a church. But when we see through the eyes of the Father, we don't see good people or bad people. But what we see is we see orphans trying to fill their God-sized hole or the sense of alienation, desperately in need of the love of the Father. And when we see through the, the world through the eyes of the Father, we grow in compassion and we grow closer and closer to the heart of God as Father. Amen. So at this time, I'm just going to ask all of us to rise. And we're going to respond really quickly. But before we respond, um, I want us to pray for, um, you know, we, we've been in the series, what we've been doing is we've been having an action item. And as you guys notice, there's a huge sign out in the front of the welcoming where we have um, these for God so love poster cards and we have names written down and for the past few weeks depending on the sermon titles um, or even specifically interceding and praying for those people that God has been putting on our heart um, and, and the same thing we're going to do today there's a, there's a table outside right here so if you feel God putting a burden on your heart for someone that's an orphan for someone who's alienated and, and trying to fill their God's soul you can fill that out and just leave it right there on the table. And the pastoral team, we pick it up, we, we put it on a database list, and we actually pray and intercede for these people that we put. But the, the, what I want to do right now in ministry time is this, is I actually want us to um, just pray for the very people that God has been burning on our heart, right? You know, this message applies to us on a personal level, but I just want to take one step outside of the personal level, and I just want to start praying and interceding for the people that in your lives may be acting as an orphan feeling the sense of alienation, feeling restlessness, feeling exhausted. And they've been trying to fill their God-sized hole with, with money, pleasure, sex, comfort, all these different things. When we know here that the only thing that will truly satisfy is Jesus Christ. Amen. He's the living water. He's the only thing that will satisfy. So for the next 30 seconds, I actually want us to lift up our voices and let's pray and intercede for these people. And, and as we sang fountains, man, that good, they will come to know that they've tasted life, they've tasted everything, and even though everything still comes up dry and short, that they'll come to know that Jesus is the living water, that the only one that will truly satisfy. So for the next 30 seconds, let's actually pray and lift up our voices and, and, and let's intercede. So Lord, we just come before you right now, God, and we ask, Lord, that um, at this moment, people that you're highlighting, all the people that you're putting a burden in our hearts, Lord, Lord, that wherever they are, whether they're in their workplaces right now, whether they're at home, whether they're getting ready for another week of work, I pray right now supernaturally you would encounter them where they are, God. And Lord, I pray that the orphan mindset would just break off. I pray that the love of the Holy Spirit would just flow upon them, God, and all the orphan spirit would break off and they would come to know the love of the Father, that God, you aren't angry, that God, you aren't punishing them, but Lord, that you are so, so, so in love with them. And Lord, I pray right now that there would be a deep sense of, of uh, acceptance, a deep sense of love that washes over them at this moment, God. We thank you. We thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And next thing I want us to pray for is this, is that actually in a couple of weeks, starting off in the beginning of April, 
you know, with our Lent series, what we actually want to do, we'll explain a little bit more over the weeks, but we actually want to start inviting these people that we've been praying and covering and writing names down for here for a month. We actually want to start inviting them physically. And so starting from April 3rd, April 10th, and April 17th, we, all the things that we've been sowing in prayer, we actually want to take a step of faith and invite these people, and we actually just want to see what Jesus intends to do which is to fill every hopeless heart with hope, amen. And so right now, if we can just pray for the month of April, I want us to pray, man, God, when these people come, when the people that we've been sowing and praying and interceding for come, Lord, that they would encounter you so powerfully in a way that they would be orphans coming back into the Father's house and that God would run after them like he did with the prodigal son and he would embrace them and he would lay kisses upon them. So let's pray for our services for the month of April. Lord, we thank you so much, God, that in the month of April, God, we've been sowing prayers, we've been laying down seeds, God, and Lord, we want to take a step of faith and actually invite those people, God. And so every single name that's written on that on those papers, every single name that's been lifted up and that we've been praying for and covering the last four weeks, God, we want to pray that, Lord, um, their heart will be receptive, that the ground will be fallow, God, that they will have good hearts and good soils to receive your word. And Lord, we just pray for radical transformation and radical encounters, God. And so, Lord, we pray that this place will be so full of your spirit, will be so full of your love, that even as those people walk into the sanctuary, God, they'll be hit, they'll be hit with your love and, and in a powerful way, God. 